Aren't you glad that God is more faithful to us than we are to him? Amen? Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. If God decided, all right, Dennis, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to be as faithful to you as you are to me. I would be in a world of hurt. Amen? I can honestly say that to you this morning. I'm trying, striving, but I know that I fail. Amen? All right. Good to have everybody this morning. Good looking crowd, see some new faces. So if this is your first time here, God bless you. We are glad that you are here, and we just hope that you'll come back. Um, and those of you that have been here for a while, we're glad you're back and hope you keep coming back. All right? Despite the preaching, you, you seem to keep coming back, so I'm glad about that. Speaking of, let's get into it this morning. Open your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 7. We'll kind of be along there eventually, so y'all give you a head start. Romans, chapter 7. The title of my message this morning, ready for it, wait for it, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Brilliant. Man, you gotta, that's pretty cool. You got to admit. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. There's nothing that me and Matt and Jennifer won't do to make these sermons successful. So... Uh, Let's pray. Father, we, once again, I just, I got to come before you, Lord, and pray for your anointing because my words, my opinions, my voice doesn't matter, but yours does. So today we give you our ear. We just pray that you speak into us in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. amen. Matthew, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 19 and 17, Jesus made this declaration. There is none good but one, that is God. I'm going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So obviously the good in this equation is God, right? And we know that. Everything that is good comes from God. There is no evil in God. In fact, the Bible goes as far as to say that God cannot even lie, right? God is the epitome of that which is good. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from God, the Father of light. So God is that which is good. It's when we look at a world that is so corrupt, there is something comforting to us about looking to God because he is good, because he is holy, so God, obviously, is the good. We are the bad, okay? Now, before we start getting too awful high and mighty on ourselves, let's look what the scripture has to say about all of us as human beings. Psalm 53, 2 and 3 says, God, now look at this, listen to this carefully. God looks down from heaven on the children of man. How many of you have, how many of you have been born by a human being? Most of us, some of us are, it's still out for debate, right? Uh, Every human being, God looks down from heaven on the children of man, every human, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Everybody say all. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. All right, now he's speaking again to the entirety of the earth from Adam and Eve till now. Every human that has ever been born, God looks down looking for one good person and finds None, because we are the bad in the equation. In our core of who we are as human beings with our sin nature, we're bad. Everything that happens, everything that, uh, bad that happens in the world, see, God a lot of times gets, the rap, get, gets the, the rap for that. People want to blame God for the bad that happens in the world. But let's be honest, who is it that actually does the bad in the world? Isn't it human beings, right? The bad. God looked for one that was good and found none, all 
we're bad. Not, no matter how much we claim to be a good person, everybody claims to be a good person. But here's the thing. Number one, being a, trying to be a good person, we know by itself is not what gets us into heaven, right? But let's look at it from a logical standpoint. We all will say, oh, well, I'm okay. I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. But the problem with that is this. We come to that conclusion by comparing ourselves to other people, right? I'm a good person com- compared to what? Compared to Hitler? Yeah, you, you probably are. Compared to your neighbor who's always kicking his dog? I don't know. I mean, we, we compare ourselves to people and we can come to the conclusion, well, I'm a, I'm a good person based on that. But according to scripture, we're really not. God looked at the world and looked at every human being and said, not good. There's, there's a badness at the core of who we are. There's only one gauge for that which is good and that is God, right? He's the only gauge. So when we compare ourselves to other people, we might come to the conclusion that we're good. But if we compare ourselves to God, how do we come out in that equation? When we, come out, when we compare ourselves to God, then we have to come to the conclusion, well, compared to God, I'm pretty bad. No matter how good I try to be, I'm still bad, right? Because I can strive every day to do what is right, and there are times I'm still going to fall short. All of us will. So compared to God, I'm bad. So, um, for example... God, according to the scripture, God's natural reaction, his first knee-jerk reaction is to forgive. His first response is to love his enemies, to sacrifice himself for others, to turn away from that which is impure. That's God's knee-jerk, natural first reaction. Forgive people, love their enemies, steer, steer away from that which is impure and sacrifice self for other people. Is that our knee-jerk, natural response? No, we're, we're exactly the opposite. Our natural reaction is to get revenge, to hate our enemies, to be selfish, and to turn towards that which is impure. So we are literally, by nature, the exact opposite of God. But here's the confusing thing, at first at least, is because the Bible says that we were created in the image of God. God literally created us in his image, and God is good. So if God created us in his image and he's good, how can we be bad? That brings us to the ugly right? The ugly is the sin that is inside of us. That's, that's ugly. The sin in mankind is what makes the world ugly. Everybody all, always out to try to take, I'm not trying to be political, I'm just using this as an example, but everybody, I'm probably safe in this uh, environment, but everybody wants to take guns away, right? If we take away guns, then society somehow gets safer, no, that's, that's not the case because the problem is not the guns or the knives or the rocks. The problem is where? It's, it's in the heart of mankind. So you take all the guns and knives away, somebody's going to kill somebody with a spoon, right? I mean, it's, it, the ugly in the world comes from inside human beings. It's the sin that we have. Jeremiah 17 and 9 says the heart, and this is of every mankind, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart, the inner core, who we are is desperately wicked above all things. That sin inside of us is very ugly. And I'm sure this doesn't happen to you, but sometimes that ugly has a way of finding itself out of me. Amen? Ask my wife. There's probably times I I, I get pretty ugly. That ugly that's in us. And we, we, we want to be good. We want to do what is right. And that brings us to Romans 7. Maybe you're there by now. But Romans 7 
uh, down along the lines, verse 18, we'll start reading. We find where the, first of all, you have to realize who wrote this. Uh, the apostle Paul wrote this, and he was one of the most godly men who have ever lived, one of the greatest preachers next, next to Jesus. Paul wrote the, the majority of the New Testament, okay? The majority of the New Testament was letters that Paul wrote to different churches and different people. Paul, probably more so than anybody else, for the most part, got it right. I mean, he was a, he was a good man, a good godly man, but he even himself struggled with that ugly sin that was on the inside of him. This is some of the most comforting verses to me, by the way. Uh, when I read this and I see where Paul, the apostle, had some struggle with that ugly sin, it gives me hope that maybe there's hope for me too. But this, this is what he writes in Romans 7, verse 18. Uh, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You ever find yourself in that position? For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who, who do it, but look at this, sin that dwells within me. It's the ugly that's inside of me, that sin nature that I struggle with on a daily basis. So he goes on to say, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And then he ends, but the last part of that, in verse 24, this is what he writes. Now, we, if we wrote about the Apostle Paul, we would write words like faithful, anointed, uh, you know, good, and holy. Maybe we would, write, we would use words like that when we're describing the Apostle Paul based on what he wrote. But when Paul describes himself, he describes himself with the word wretched, right? Verse 24, wretched man that I am. He looks at himself because, again, he's, he's admitting to the ugly that's in him. I'm created in the image of God. God is good. God is holy. And compared to him, I am bad. And it, because of that sin, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? In other words, what hope is there for me? Paul says, I keep trying to do the right thing. I kind of fall short. I want to do it. I don't do it. I do, I do want to do it. I don't do it. And I'm, I'm struggling with this. And I feel like such a wretched, such a wicked man. Who's going to deliver me? Who's going to help me through this problem that I have? And then he answers it with the very last part of that verse. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is all that is good. God is all that is good, therefore he is our answer. In other words, Paul's saying, if it was up to me to be good enough to make it to heaven, I would be lost. Thanks be unto God who recognized my need and sent Jesus ultimately to be good for me. Amen? Amen. Jesus lived a good and perfect life. And he died a wicked sinner's death for me. He was perfect. I'm imperfect. He died on my behalf. He is all that is good. The only way I can be good is to snuggle up close to Jesus. Amen? And even that, when I say well, the only thing that makes us good is to, 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 to know Jesus, that doesn't necessarily make us perfect and, and good in everything that we do. Paul is talking about that. It's just that now when God looks at me, before Jesus, all he could see was my sin. When he looks at you this morning, if, you don't, if you're not a Christian, if, you don't, if you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, God looks at you and all he can see is the bad. He sees the sin. But when we accept Jesus and his blood, the Bible says it covers that sin. So, so now when God looks at me, he sees good. Not because necessarily I've got it right and I'm doing everything right. 
And it's not, it's not an excuse for, for my sins, but it's, you know, God's looking at me as good, not because I'm, I'm figuring this whole thing out, because about the time I think I've got to figure it out, I, I slip up, I fall, I do something, I'm thinking, I don't know nothing, right? You ever been there? But God looks at me, he sees good, not because of me, but because of Jesus. That's how important Jesus is. Paul, oh, I'm such a wretched man, I just can't get it right. But thank you, God, for Jesus. Amen? Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for Jesus, because now I can rest knowing that the blessings of God and ultimately my eternal soul is not resting on my performance or resting on how good I can try to be. It's all resting on the faithfulness, the goodness of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's how important he really is. Let's just think about this. That which God passionately hates is inside that which he passionately loves. That which God passionately hates, sin. God absolutely hates sin. He doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sin. Now, God hates sin because, for one, it's just direct disobedience to him and to his way, right? So if God says, don't do this, and we do it, that, that's just a, it's kind of a, you know, it's a slap in his face. So, I mean, obviously, God hates sin because it's being disobedient to him. But I'll tell you why, why I think God, the main reason why I think God hates sin is because sin destroys us. This sin causes so many problems in our life. Sin causes so much pain for us, and God loves us so much. That's why God hates sin, because he's, God hates to see the pain that, that we ultimately put ourselves through in many cases. God hates sin. That's what Jesus went to the cross for. The Bible says to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the effects of sin on our lives and ultimately on our, on our eternity. That which God passionately hates, sin, is inside that which he passionately loves, which is us. Amen? Doesn't matter how bad of a sinner we've been. You name it. You, you, you list all of your sins, everything you've ever done. You say, I've done it all. List it all. God hated that sin, but he still loves that person. Amen? He still loves you. Passionately. Passionately loves you. That to the point when you've heard this said before, and I believe that it's true, that if you were the only person on this earth who has ever lived, Jesus would have died for you. Jesus didn't die on the cross saying, well, there's kind of more, yeah, there's a bunch of them. And I'll, no, I mean, if one person, the Bible says he's not willing that anybody perish, but that all come to repentance. If it was just you, Jesus would have died for you because that which he passionately hates is inside that which he passionately loves. Kind of like a, uh, some of you have heard this story before, but it's, it's kind of like a guacamole-filled Twinkie, right? Some of, most, a lot of you have, have heard this story, but many of you haven't, so let me tell it to you really quickly. Uh, many years ago, so is, I don't think Julie, I think Julie had to work here. Is she here? So, okay, I can talk bad about her because she's not here this morning. So it's been several years ago, but uh, Julie and John Orvick hosted a, a Halloween, you know, fall get together and they kind of did a fear factor theme and they had all kinds of games set up and we divided into teams and we're doing these these games fear factor type stuff and most of them were things like you know they had little cups of jello with a candy eyeball in it and you had to eat it you know just kind of you've seen fear factor that that kind of stuff and it was all like gross stuff you had to try to make yourself do well finally she comes uh, julie comes out with a big old plate of twinkies and she said okay th this this game is about speed and who can eat the most Twinkies. So we, we got a team. I think me and Sarah Conger and, and Stacy Johnson, I think we're a team. And, and Sarah and Stacy had done the other 
uh, games, but when I saw that plate of Twinkies, I said, oh, I got this. Right, this, this, is my, this is my game. So the, 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 the idea was whoever can eat the most Twinkies in a 60-second period, that team wins. So, man, this game was invented for me. I mean, there is, there, there is no greater food product than a Twinkie. I mean, that's like, that's like, the, that's like manna from heaven, right? And the Twinkie didn't get any better than a Twinkie. And so I get it in my, and I'm thinking, okay, I can, first of all, I can inhale one. I mean, I can put the whole thing in my mouth and have it chewed by the time these losers even get one, you know, half one eaten. So five, four, three, two, one, go. I shove the entire Twinkie in my mouth and I'm, I'm chewing, I'm chewing, I'm chewing. And all of a sudden it dawns on me, this is the nastiest Twinkie <laughs> I have ever tasted in my entire life. Something is wrong. This thing went, this thing weren't, it went bad. It's something wrong. And it, it tasted like, dog food or something. I mean, it was horrible. And I'm, I'm like, you know, my eyes, and I look over at Jason Henley, who knew what was going on, and Jason had this, you know, this like, this uh, look on his face, like, gotcha, you know, type of thing. Well, as it turns out, Julie had somehow, it was like a transfusion, somehow she had sucked out all of the good creamy stuff and inserted guacamole and I absolutely hate guacamole. Whereas, whereas a Twinkie is like God's gift, God's food from heaven, guacamole is like food from hell, in my opinion, okay? I hate guacamole. It's nasty. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, and I'm, it dawned on me, some, I was, the jig's up. They've, they've pulled over. I just began, I mean, not be gross, but I just started vomit. I began to vomit. They had, I wondered why they had buckets sitting right there, you know, for, for, a, for, a, for a Twinkie challenge, but... I mean, I, I just made a mad dash for the, for the brush and, and began to heave. Uh, I just couldn't. I, so, so you can imagine my disappointment, my surprise. But that which I desperately love, right, was filled with that which I desperately hate. And it's a pretty good picture of, of us, that God desperately loves us, but he, he just hates and Our sin sickens him because of ultimately what it does to us. Amen. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't cast us aside because of the ugly that's in us? Aren't you glad this morning that he loved you and I, the shell, the outside, who we are, more so than the times that we failed him? I'm so very grateful. That which God passionately loves is ultimately broken. You know, we, we, we throw things away when they become broken. Or if, let's say you go to a store or an antique shop or something like that, or a yard sale, and there's something for sale and it's broken, you and I try to get it for a discount, right? We'll try to pay less money. It was like, well, that's broken. I don't want to pay full price for something that's broken. But the, the, good thing that we, the, the good thing about God, where God is different, is that God pays full price for damaged goods. Full price. God said, that's broken, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay full list price for it. What was the cost? What was the, what was the cost for Jesus to pay full price for damaged goods, it was his own blood. Jesus didn't come and just halfway die. I mean, Jesus came and went to the whipping post. I mean, Jesus shed a lot of blood before he died at the whipping post as they were whipping him with the cat and nine tails and his back would have just looked like hamburger and the loss of blood and, uh, you know, the, the crown of thorns. And he lost a lot of blood. And he could have said, that, that's good enough. These people are damaged. These people are broken. That's all I'm willing to pay. And that'd have been a lot. But Jesus said, I'm going to pay full price. I'm going to go all the way and I'm going to give my life so that they could 
be set free. You and I, can't, we can't fathom that kind of a love. Again, everything we know is comparison. Is that person worthy of my love? It, it, it all depends on their performance. How good are they to me, right? And now we are. How good have they been to me? And that'll determine how good I'm going to be to them. God's the opposite. The Bible says that God uh, commended, he gave us his love, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were damaged, while we were still broken, that's when Jesus died for us. He paid full price, amen, for something that was broken and damaged. That's an amazing thing to me. Uh, in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, talks about a, a woman whose name was Mary Magdalene. And it says, soon afterward, he, Jesus, uh, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve, his disciples, were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So here we find in Jesus' inner circle, as he's, you know, in, in full-blown ministry. And, and number one, the twelve that he chose, they weren't exactly saints. You know what I mean? Uh, so he's got this ragtag, broken group of people that he chooses to put his spirit in and chooses to put his calling, and he, he's going around. But here is this woman, Mary Magdalene, who had been demon-possessed. The Bible says seven demons Jesus had cast out of her. Think about that. I mean, if, we, if you come, uh, you're walking down the street, you're coming in front of Pizza Americana, and somebody jumps out in front of you, and they've got seven demons. What are you going to do? Right? I mean, we'd be like, ah, we'd be freaked out. But Jesus... He didn't see, he, 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 he cared more about that woman than he did about the sin that she had committed, whatever she, lifestyle she was caught up in, and it was, a, no doubt she was prostitution and the whole, you name it, she probably had done it. He wasn't concerned about the life she lived before that got her into this demon-possessed possess, uh, uh, situation. He was more concerned about her. He passionately loved her because she was a soul, and he delivered her. And she, from that moment on, committed her entire life everywhere from, from then on. I mean, everywhere you see Jesus, you, you read about Mary Magdalene. And do you know that when Jesus Christ raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene was the very first one he appeared to? Isn't that something? He didn't, go to P, he didn't appear to Peter and John and some of those more prominent disciples. I mean, they had a harder time believing. That's probably why he didn't appear to them. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. That, that, that proves to us he loves us. He's not concerned with our past. He's concerned with our future, ultimately. Cast this woman out. And there's, we read about another woman. Some commentaries think that maybe it could be the same. I didn't give no indication that it was Mary Magdalene. But we read about a woman who had come in. Jesus was actually at the house of a, of a Pharisee, which a Pharisee was a real stuck-up religious person. Let's just leave it at that. And, and, and this guy had invited Jesus to come eat at his house. And so while they're eating, this, the Simon, this Pharisee, he, the whole time he's sizing Jesus up. I mean, he's just trying to figure Jesus out. And, and you know, the Pharisees were always trying to catch Jesus in, in, you know, in some words. But ultimately, during this dinner, the Bible says this woman comes in. And she's weeping. And she gets down on her hands and knees. And she breaks open an alabaster box of ointments, very expensive ointment. And she breaks it open on Jesus' feet, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, obviously, back in those days, washing someone's feet was, was common practice. When you go to somebody's house, uh, the servant of the house would come and wash your feet. That was but she's coming. This is not just about getting Jesus' feet clean. I mean, this is about her being so overwhelmed by the love of God that Jesus would 
even give her the time of day. This is a guy that has walked on water, that is that has risen, risen people from the dead, who has healed blind people. This is, a, this is obviously a man. This is obviously God. And she just begins to weep that he would love her so much. And nothing was too good for him. Put the expensive ointment so humbled to the point of a servant that she would wash his feet with her hair. And the Bible says that Simon, this snooty religious guy, says, well, speaking of Jesus, he says, well, Jesus, Jesus can't be from God. If he had any idea what kind of woman this was, he'd never let her close to him. See, Simon was sizing himself up in comparison to this woman. So in Simon's mind, he was good. He was a good person, and this woman wasn't. She's just, based on the lifestyle that she had lived. He's sizing himself up. And, and as it turns out, Jesus said, no, I actually look at this woman as good and you're pretty nasty. You're pretty ugly on the inside, Simon. Because when Simon says, ah, he, he can't be really from, he can't really be God, because if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her close. And Jesus says, I'm going to got a little something to say to you, right? You're ugly. <laughs> in, in essence, your heart just stinks. Because you think you're so good, in reality, you're prideful. And this woman is good, not, not because of what she's done, but because she recognized the ugly in her. And she trusted in Jesus to make her good in the sight of God. Isn't that something? Hallelujah. The Bible says that, that God loves, he's close to those who are of a broken and a contrite heart. God looks for broken stuff. You know, there's, there's people that, that look for new stuff to buy. And there's some people that look for broken stuff to buy. Jeff's kind of one of those, uh, what, what do you call salvage dogs or something like that? You know, you go, you go to the arts, you find that which is broken and then fix it back up again. Some people enjoy that more than just buying something new, and that's kind of the way God is. God, he's close to those who are broken and of a contrite heart. Those who yield to him, God said, I'll find those who are broken and I'll fix them. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm, I'm one of those broken. Amen? You're one of those broken. We're all one of those. Everybody's broken. Everybody is. No matter how much we may think we have our act together, in God's sight, we're still broken. We need to be fixed. This morning, you may say, well, I'm a good person. And you may be. I mean, overall, you know, compared to most, you may be a good person. But you still need to be fixed. You still need the blood of Jesus to cleanse your sin. Amen? You need that. Jesus said a man's got to be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I love Jeremiah 29 and 11. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. This is God speaking. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. God says, I know how I feel about you. They're good thoughts. God, God is not, you know, angry and just looking for the opportunity to incinerate you and I. He said, my thoughts towards you are good thoughts. <laughs> Hallelujah. It, our actions and our sins in many cases brings about bad things in our life. Not in every case. I'm not saying that every time something bad happens is because of your sin. Not, not at all. But... I think we could all agree that our sin brings about bad things in our life. And, but God said, hey, I, my thought toward you, God said, is, is good, not evil. Imagine your child doing something wrong and they know they've disappointed you. And for them to, to think, oh, well, dad or mom could never love me anymore because of what I've done. You know, you look at them and you may be aggravated at what they've done, but you would say to them, oh, no, no, you've got it all wrong. My thoughts toward you, I love you still no matter what. I mean, that, that which 
I passionately hate is inside that which I passionately love. I love you no matter what you do. Our love as parents are not conditional. I'll love you if. And, and God's love towards mankind, all of us, is not conditional. His love is not conditional. I'll love you if. God loves us all no matter what. Did you know that God loved Hitler? God loved Osama bin Laden. Again, we can't fathom that because we're looking at their deeds. But God loved them. He absolutely hated their sin. But he loved them. He loves us all. He gives us all hope. You look at, look at it from like as a, ma- a magnet. A magnet, there's when a magnet and a metal, there's a positive side and there's a negative side. The positive side of the magnet is attracted to the negative side of the metal. Or that may be backward, I'm not sure. But the positive is attracted to the negative in, in whatever case. And so that which is positive draws that which is negative to itself, and there becomes a bond. That which is positive, this is the magnet, that which is positive, which represents God. Everything about God is positive. Why? Because he, and he alone is good. That which is, a, which is positive is attracted to that which is negative, which is us. We're negative. We've already determined that. There is no good. But there's an attraction there, and, and when coming together, there becomes a bond and so when, it, when God draws us to God says, I love you, so I'm, he's attracted to us, even though there's all this negative sin and this bond between us and God. And what happens then is while our sin is on him, his righteousness is on us, right? We become righteous because we become one with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, because God is attracted to us. He loves us that much. And you know, that bond is not, it's not easily separated. I mean, that, that, it's, it, it's, it's there. You can't separate it very easily. But, but even when it gets separated, like, and you've done this before with the magnet, I can feel it, like about right in there. Even, even though it is separated, there's this drawing. It's, it's like the magnet can't wait to be attached to the metal again. It's, it's a pull, it's a tug. And so with us, it, you know, it's, the Bible says that nothing can pluck us out of the hand of God. It, nothing, there's, there's a bond there. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, there's a bond, nothing can separate us. And even at times when we get caught up in life and life begin, we begin to feel this distance with God and maybe we begin to stray a little bit. But what you find is that the, that attraction from God is still there. There's still that drawing. You may kind of feel it this morning. Maybe you've just kind of drifted from God a little bit. And and this morning, you just kind of feel him pulling you in closer. There's a bond there. God God does not give up on us as easy as we think he does. That should comfort you this morning. He doesn't give up on us as easy as we think he does. He's not looking for the opportunity to scratch your name out of the book of life, so to speak. Oh, that... I'll just pass that around. If you could just get you a magnet and some metal today. Feel that. And every time you feel that, just think about that being God. I want to be attached to that metal. I, I, I want it. I crave it. I look forward to it. The negative side is also drawn to the positive, though, right? The positive is drawn to the negative, but the negative is also drawn to the positive. Why is that? Because we were created in the image of God. We were created good. Genesis testifies to that. When God created mankind, God looked at man and said, it is good. 
We were created that way in the image of God, but because of our sin, we're now bad, but there's something in the core of our being that longs to be good again. Even when we're doing bad, we want to do good. That's what Paul said. There's something in us that wants and longs to be good. We are attracted down deep and still have a persistent desire to be good. There's a craving for that which is good because what happens is we begin to hate the ugly that's in us. I hope that you've gotten there. Maybe you're, maybe you're kind of getting there. God's been dealing with your heart and, and you, you see the need, and you never, but maybe you just haven't got to the point where there, there comes a point where the sin that's in you, that ugly, that, that ugly sin becomes ugly to you too. The Bible says that there's, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but there comes a point where the sin doesn't satisfy any longer and it becomes ugly and that, that gets us, that then uh, leaves us looking for something that is good. And it attracts us to God, who is the only source of good, right? Jesus, um, you know, when, when he was on the earth, he, he very seldom, I told you about the dinner that he went with the religious guy, but that was really kind of one occasion. Most of the time when you see Jesus, you see him surrounded by a bunch of sinners. Everywhere Jesus went, sinners came and gathered around to hear what he had to say. Levi was a, a tax collector, a cheat and a scoundrel and he invites Jesus to dinner one day and brings all of his cheat and scoundrel friends with him. Prostitutes, tax collectors, cheaters, murderers, thieves, all coming together to hear what Jesus had to say. Or something that it, even though they were negative, there was something that attracted them to that which is good and they wanted to hear Jesus. And as they heard the teachings of Jesus Christ, when they came in contact with Jesus, then they would yield to him. They would attach to him. They would turn their lives over to him. And so in the eyes of God, they were no longer prostitutes and tax collectors and cheats and scoundrels. They were good, right? By association, the association of Jesus Christ. Oh, those old, those old uh, snooty religious people came to the disciples when they saw Jesus having lunch with sinners. And they went to the disciples and were like, your master eats with sinners. He can't really be from God. He associates with negative, wicked people. And I'm, I'm here to say this morning that I am so very glad that Jesus eats with sinners. <clears throat> if, if, if that scripture wasn't in the Bible, I think none of us would have much hope. It was the sinners that gathered around him, and Jesus didn't cast them off. Oh, no, you, you're a sinner. He was, he was attracted to them. He wanted to save them, just like he wants to save you and I today. Amen? You, what you find about this is that this is the metal and this is the magnet. The metal doesn't hang on to the magnet. Okay? It's not, the metal is not hanging on to the magnet. The magnet is hanging on to the metal. It's not a matter of us holding on to God. It's a matter of God holding on to us. We, we, we think sometimes, oh, I'm just, I'm struggling. If I could just cling to God, I'm trying to hold to God, but my fingers are like slipping and it's up to me to cling to God. It's not the way it is. God's holding us. Amen? God's holding us. We just have to rest in that. And no, God, I thank you. Change me, yes. Should we, should we strive to, to do better at being good? Absolutely. I think we should. I think we should strive every day to do better at, at being good, good. But we don't accomplish that uh, we don't accomplish that by just trying to be better at being good. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna do better today. I'm gonna do better today. 30 minutes later, you mess up, right? We don't accomplish being better at being good by trying to be good. We accomplish being better we learn by learning more and more about the only one who is good, right? If, I, if there's no good in me, then how can I get myself to be better at being good? I can't. I have to learn more about the only one who is good, which is Jesus Christ. That's why we are here today. That's why we open God's word and we begin to study about the life of Jesus. We're learning about the one who is good. And you'd be surprised, the more you learn about Jesus, the more you begin to be like Jesus. It's true. You learn about him who is good and that begins to transform you and I daily. We still fall short, but, we're, but God is rubbing his good off on to us. And we find where maybe some of those things that we used to struggle with, maybe we don't anymore because God's doing a work in us. So for me, you know, we have a, sometimes we look at maybe our family traits, you know, and we say, well, that's just, the, I mean, I might say, well, that's just the Walton coming out in me, right? Waltons aren't exactly known for their great patience, you know, or, um, and I can hide behind that excuse, you know, just do whatever and say, well, that's just, that's just the Walton in me. That's just, <clears throat> maybe rather than hiding from that, that excuse, maybe I should yield more to the Jesus that's in me. There is a lot of Walton in me, right? Sometimes Walton comes out, but Jesus is in me too. So, I'd like for Jesus to come out a little bit more in me than the Walton. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying, man? I'm as like a. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna close up. I'm gonna end with this. If you want to turn into into Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18, uh, Jeremiah was a prophet, oh, lived around, I think around 800 some odd years, maybe before Jesus was born, somewhere around through there. And during Jeremiah's lifetime, I mean, he was a prophet, during his ministry, his nation, Israel, was very wicked. And they had backslidden, they had turned against God. And so Jeremiah was given the task to basically preach to them to try to get the nation to turn their hearts back to God. And along with that message and along with him trying to get them to turn their hearts back to God came a warning that he had to give them. A warning that, look, God is, is, is inviting you back, okay? He's, he's, God loves you, you've sinned and you've become wicked, but God is still pulling you and he wants you to come back and repent. But he gave them the, the, the warning that if you refuse, if you don't, then there's gonna be a final separation that comes. Then, then God's gonna bring judgment on, on this land. And so it was, it was a very difficult challenge. But here's, here's what God, God give uh, Jeremiah something to do as, as, a, as a visual aid, if you will. So in, in chapter 18, verse one, Excuse me, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I, Jeremiah, went down to the potter's house. And there he, and there he was, working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, 
Can I, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now you can put your name there. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O, o Dirk, O Kurt, O Steve. Put your name there. Can I not do with you as this potter has done with this clay? Jeremiah, here's what I want you to do. You have a difficult thing, a difficult message you've got to give your people. To go to them and say, okay, you're separated from God, you've sinned against God, but God is still compelling you. The potter has got this big lump of clay on his wheel, and he's working it, and he's shaping it. And in the process, he looks, and it's spoiled, it's broken, it's cracked, it's, it's marred. This will never work. And so, rather than taking that clay and thinking, oh, this is hopeless, this clay is worthless. I'm never going to be able to make anything out of this clay. Rather than saying that and throwing it away, the Bible says that the potter began to rework it. He, he kind of beat it back down, started over, and he began to mold that clay into a vessel that now has value for the potter. And he said, and that represents God's relationship with all of us, is that God is working in us. He's, he created us to be what he wants us to be. And at times, we are broken. We're all broken. And so God, when he looks at our brokenness and our flaws and our weaknesses, God doesn't just say, this person is worthless. Forget it. This person is not worth my time. The Bible says that God begins to rework us. He begins to change us and reshape us to be good and to be what he would have us to be. Amen? I believe that's the, the, the calling of God on every person in every generation. Okay, you've sinned. Let, let's forget about that now. Hey, let's, let's move on. So God's saying, what about, what about? God's saying, no, here's, let me, have, let me have my way in your life. I'm the good. You're bad, yes. And you're filled with that which is ugly, but I'm good. Good enough to love you despite your bad and your ugly. And in Isaiah, God said, I'll give you beauty for ashes. I'll give you beauty for ashes. Ashes are ugly. Ashes are dirty. Ashes are nasty. God said, I'll take your ashes, your broken life, your failures, and I'll give you something beautiful in its place. Amen, something good. I'll take your ugly, and I'll give you something that's beautiful in my sight. Hallelujah. I've asked Brother Papaw to sing this. This whole song says that he, doesn't he didn't throw the clay away. Listen to the words of this song. Kind of goes along with what I'm saying. And as God deals with your heart this morning, just begin, begin a conversation with God this morning. Let me, let me back up. God has already begun the conversation with you, right? Through this message this morning, God has started the conversation. If you don't know, if you don't know him as your Savior, he's began the conversation. All he's looking for is for you to respond. And say, yes, Lord, I hear you, I feel you calling, and I accept you. 